Today's episode is brought to you by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 222 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about owning and running a local yarn shop with my guest, Ana Campos. Ana is a Brazilian knitting instructor, fiber witch, and designer with over 20 years of knitting experience. She currently makes her home by the sea in Salem, Massachusetts, known as the Witch City. As a Latina and an immigrant, she values the opportunities for connection, community, and common ground that knitting creates. Ana's love for the knitting community led her to open Circle of Stitches, the witchiest yarn shop in 2015. Her focus is on empowering knitters to grow their skills and technical knowledge so everyone can make pieces they love. Anna is passionate about teaching students how to customize patterns for the perfect fit. She also loves teaching Portuguese knitting, which reminds her of her grandma Tina back home in Rio, and hosting her monthly tarot study group. Anna Campos, welcome. Thank you so much, Abby. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So um, we talked in the intro about Circle of Stitches, and I wondered if you could kind of describe the shop and what you carry and kind of, in your own words, sort of what the goal is of um, of your local yarn shop. So how to describe my shop. So I opened Circle of Stitches. It's been seven years now, which is amazing. I can't believe it's been that long. And it's gone through, you know, sort of an evolution to become what it is today. Uh, But I think that the best way to sort of explain what my shop is, is to talk about the name uh, Circle of Stitches, because it's a play on Circle of Witches. You know, we're here in Salem. And in reality, everything that that I do is an excuse for people to gather and share in community. I think that as a society as a whole, we've lost a lot of really important social things that we used to do, like have sacred circles where women would gather and share and you'd have opportunity for people of different generations to share stories and be in the same space with each other and just pause and share in that community. And we don't have opportunities for that a lot anymore. And knitting is an activity that really brings together people from so many different backgrounds and across generations. And I absolutely love knitting and I love the fiber arts, but being able to have that community aspect and create a little bit of that sort of circle that we've been missing is what's really, really important to me. 
And so that has allowed me to sort of bring together things that people hadn't really brought together before in the knitting world. Uh, you mentioned in the introduction that I host my monthly tarot circle. And so uh, my shop is a combination of, you know, a regular knitting store, but also a witch shop in a way. We sell a lot of, you know, tarot decks and candles and items for meditation. But it's because for me, I really think that all of this work is very sacred and there's a lot of opportunity for mindfulness and wellness in the knitting. And so I really think that those things belong together. So you'll find, you know, everything that you'll find in in the other local yarn shop as far as tons of yarn and knitting notions. Uh, I do try and specialize in companies that are smaller and that have morals that I can align with socially, environmentally. So we carry things like spin cycle yarns and wool, and uh, I work with Lube Fiber Studio that, you know, works with a micro mill in Pennsylvania. And I, you know, I work with independent bag makers and all sorts of artists. And so that's very, very important to me. And then, you know, we have the witchy side that I already talked a little bit about, but even there I try and collaborate with artists and makers. We carry a lot of independently published tarot decks. The candles that we sell are made uh, by a local candle maker in Beverly. And so it's very much focused on community connection, both through our products as well as, you know, direct with our customers. And can you describe a little bit, about Salem, because Salem is a very unique town. Um, and you do, as you said, a really good job of integrating some of the reasons why people visit Salem into a yarn shop, which I think is a really interesting thing to do. And although there's no other town like Salem, Massachusetts, there are other towns that are known for certain things. And it's interesting mm-hmm. to think about how a local yarn shop or a local quilt shop or, or whatever, you know, kind of craft store is located in that town can also be a focus for whatever it is that that town is known for. Yeah. Well, so Salem, you know, Salem is the witch city. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting town because it was where the witch trials happened. Right. And so there's a lot of very, very heavy, sad history linked to Salem but what happened is that it's become a place where people sort of come to be witches and be around witches. It's kind of become, you know, a place that embraces that which was you know, rejected so long ago. Um, Salem is actually a, a place that has a non-discrimination ordinance written into law, which I think is really amazing. And so it's created a really like thriving, very, very unique community. Um, but it's become the place where people come to experience real witches. Lori Cabot was sort of the first one who put Salem on the map way back when. She opened the first witch store in the U.S. back when witchcraft was still illegal. And over the last 30 years or so, the witchcraft tourism in Salem has really boomed. And so people come here to uh, buy witchcraft supplies and get tarot readings and... It's definitely a very unique town. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have made your shop not just a yarn shop and not just a place for community, but also a place to find witchy goods so that if you are a tourist, you can get all of those things. Right. And, you know, I honestly was very hesitant in the beginning to do that because there is a little bit of a 
uh, a little bit of tension, I would say, between, you know, the witches of Salem and the folks who aren't into that stuff. And so there's a little bit of a division. There's people who kind of look down on, you know, the witches and the witchcraft shops. But realistically, I have been reading tarot longer than I've been knitting. I started studying tarot when I was eight years old because I grew up with an aunt who's a tarot reader. And I started knitting you know, around age nine and sort of on and off. And so both of those things have been a huge part of my life. And so when I first opened, I was like, no, I have to be normal. I can't people let people know that I'm a weirdo, right? And so I just opened an air quotes, regular yarn shop. And then I realized, you know, why did I leave a corporate job to work for myself to still feel like I can't be authentic? And so I just decided to start bringing those things in little by little and now tarot and witchiness is very popular in the knitting world. <laughs> right. So it's caught up mm. in a way. Yeah, because yeah. Salem Salem's also like a Massachusetts seaside town. Um, yes. And that, so it has another sort of identity beyond the, the tourist Absolutely. Piece. You know, there is the side of it where it is a historic seaside town. We have the Peabody Essex Museum, which is one of the best art museums it in is. the U.S. That's my favorite. You know. Um, we have a very, very rich maritime history. There was a, ta- a time when Salem was a more important port than Boston, you know? Right. Absolutely. So it has a very, very rich history. So let's talk a little bit about where you grew up, because um, you said that you um, learned to read tarot when you were a child and learned to knit. So you grew up in Brazil, is that right? So I was born in Brazil and I've lived a bunch of my life in Brazil, but I've moved around a fair amount too. Um, I lived for a few years in Uruguay, which is just south of Brazil. And I lived in Germany for a few years and I was born in Brazil, but my parents were actually stationed for work in Tokyo, Japan at the time. So I, you know, three months old, we went back to Japan and I was there for my first three years. So what did your parents do for work? Um, both my parents used to work for the Brazilian Foreign Service. Oh, wow. That's so neat. Okay. And so um, you said that um, you learned to knit when you were a child. Who taught you? Well, so the funny thing is, is that my mom taught me how to knit when I was eight, but my mom doesn't really know how to knit. And so I'm not entirely sure what she taught me, but I was convinced that I was knitting. And I recently found the swatch that I made when I was eight. And I was like, I don't know what this is. It's definitely not knitting. And so it was a thing that I sort of learned over and over uh, in my life from different people. And when it really finally stuck, honestly, I was 18 and I learned from a good friend of mine who I had actually met through um, paganism. And so that was another sort of point in my life where like witchiness and knitting intersected. And did you go to college in the U.S.? I did. That's how I ended up moving here. I graduated high school when I was 18 and I moved to Connecticut to go to college. Did you go to Connecticut College or? I did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my husband grew up in New London. So I've been by there many times. Oh, Um, that's so funny. Yeah. (laughs) Small world. Yeah, totally. Okay. And so what, what did you focus on in college and what did you think you wanted to do as a profession? I uh, double majored in architecture and psychology. And I wanted to be an architect. Uh, When I finished uh, college, Connecticut College, I moved to Boston to go to graduate school. I went to the Boston Architectural College and I worked full time and took graduate classes at night. And it was very grueling. Um, And then I, you know, I graduated and I was already working in in the industry because I worked the entire time I was in grad school. 
And then I worked for a couple more years and I was not very happy. And I was spending all my free time knitting to de-stress. So I started selling my hand knit pieces at craft fairs. And then I realized I don't actually know how to sell fashion. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about that. And I realized I'm actually passionate about the knitting side. So then I started uh, designing knitting patterns and hand dyeing my own yarn and selling it at craft fairs, you know, on weekends. Okay. So knitting at that time was a hobby sort of fledgling business in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, um, and it sounds like writing the instructions and, and making the materials was more attractive than finish, you know, selling the finished pieces. Um, and so did you at a certain point decide, okay, I need to switch careers? Yes. So I, I don't know when I decided that that was my goal, but at the point when I started doing craft fairs, I was doing that with the intent of eventually being able to work for myself uh, and being able to leave the architecture career. You know, honestly, just was not working for me in terms of like work-life balance. Not that I have any now, but at least like now it's my own fault as opposed to it being for someone else. Um, And honestly, there was a lot of sexism in the industry that was really difficult. And so I knew that I wanted to be able to create a life for myself that was, you know, safer and happier. Um, and so when I was working the craft fairs on weekends, I, I definitely had that goal of trying to grow my business. I never planned to open a yarn store as what that would look like. I didn't know that that's where I was going to go. But when I, the year that I turned 30, I left architecture. Okay. And did, was that scary? What, how did your family feel about that? Um, well, my husband at the time and I definitely had some back and forths about it, but ultimately he supported me. Um, my mom to this day is a little unsure of that choice. She has at least stopped sending me job listings as of a couple years ago, but, uh, you know, she, she was definitely very worried about her daughter, you know, working for herself because it sounds, you know, it sounds unstable, but it was actually Tara Swiger. Uh, if you know her, she's, I she's, do. A, a she's been on this show. Yeah. Yeah. So she said something to me and this was years ago at this point, probably more than a decade ago, but she said, you know, your business hasn't failed until the moment that you give up on it. And I was like, Oh, okay. You know, that <laughs> kind of gave me a little bit of peace. Yeah, that's true. So, um, what was the business at that time? Was it the patterns and hand dyeing yarn? Or- yeah, when I was chatting with Tara, um, it was actually, yeah, I was hand dyeing yarn. And it was before I opened my shop, but sort of in that transitional moment. And were there some shops that you had been to either locally or when you travel that just inspired you or you felt like, wow, this is a really great business or this is a really great shop and I'd like to do something similar. Uh, so gather here in Cambridge, which is where you and I met. Yes. Uh, obviously was a- an inspiration as far as the potential for community. Uh, Salem used to have a yarn shop called seat stitch, which used to be very special. And I actually worked there and managed it for a while before the owner decided that she was uh, you know, done with that part of her life. And so I was able to be in that environment and, you know, see how wonderful it could be, but then also make the decision of, you know, what would it be like if it was mine and how would it be different? 
Right. So what were some of the things that you learned during your time working at Seedstead? That's interesting that you had that kind of on the job experience and training, um, you know, specific to what you're doing now. Uh, well, so what I realized while I was working there is that people kept coming back to see me specifically because of my technical knowledge. And so that's been something that I've really leaned very heavily into. Uh, honestly, my architecture background has been really helpful for that because I actually, for my, my final master's thesis, you had to include a non-architecture section, and I wrote a whole section on the structure of knitting. I'm able to look at knitting and really understand the structure of it. You know, like if I forgot to add a cable, I can drop just those stitches and put in the cable. I've, you know, I've dropped and picked up brioche, and it's because I really understand the structure of what's happening there. And so I approach te- teaching people from that perspective. Honestly, one of my least favorite things that exists out there is that Kitchener stitch rhyme. I, I hate it. I hate it because if you're not starting exactly where that rhyme wants you to start, if you're off by half a stitch, it doesn't work. And so I teach people to understand the structure of it instead. Um, and so that for me has been really important, you know, just really empowering people to really understand how their knitting works. Right. The why behind the choices that you're making. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So um, did a retail space become open and you thought, oh, I, maybe maybe now's the time to jump and, and make this happen? Or how did the shop come to be? Well, so uh, you know, the, the person who owned Seed Stitch sort of surprised all of us by saying that she was moving on. And I sort of had to think about like, well, well what am I going to do now? Because having left my corporate job, having a part-time job at her yarn shop was something that made me feel like I had a little bit of stability, right? And then it went back to what Tara said. She said, as long as you're working for someone else, like, you can lose that job at any time. Your business is only done when you decide it's done. And so I sort of had to figure out what are my next steps. But also, I really enjoyed the yarn shop environment, And I was driving around Salem one day and I saw an open storefront and I was like, hmm. And so I (laughs) called the landlord and uh, bought a lot of paint because the walls were magenta. And, you know, here we are. It was, you know, it felt kind of very sudden, but also very right. And I was fortunate that when I was in graduate school for architecture, one of the classes that I had to take was uh, on professional development and how to write a business plan. And so I looked at my very limited budget and I wrote a business plan and I said, all right, I have a three month cushion and then I need the shop to be making enough money to pay rent. And I hope this works. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Craftsy. And here is a message from Craftsy. At Craftsy, we know making. Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $3. Visit CraftsyOffers.com to sign up, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. For only $3, you get a full year of access to over 1,500 premium full-length classes. 
it can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you are an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you are an experience maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 1,500 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. So visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, back to my conversation with Anna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. All right, so you just kind of jumped in and um, started, I guess, like buying inventory. What were you looking for at the time when you started, sort of started out buying well, so I, I'm definitely very much an architect and a Virgo in my brain. And so I made a spreadsheet. I'm like, all right, so here's every yarn weight that I want to carry. Here's sort of some important features that they need to have. So I had like, you know, lace, fingering, uh, sporky K, worsted, bulky, super bulky, like all written out. And then like super wash, non-super wash types of fibers. And I sort of mapped out like, which were like, what do I think are the core things that I need? Okay. And you know, can I make it work with my budget? And so honestly, it's kind of funny to me. Now I look at the old photos of the shop from when I opened in 2015 and I was like, there was hardly anything in there. I can't believe I made it. You know? Yeah. So was there a turning point down the road where you felt like, wow, I am going to make it like, you know, you said you had a three month cushion. Was there something you could point to where you're like, wow, that was when I knew like, this is going to work. Well, so honestly, it was the pandemic. Um, because I was, you know, at the time I was still married, my husband had a good job. And so I needed the shop to not be losing money. You know, there are people who are able to run the shop at a loss and it helps their taxes, etc. That's not that's not my reality. I, I needed the shop to at least be self-sufficient. Um, but then with the beginning of the pandemic and actually right before the pandemic, um, my my husband had uh, lost his job and. I sort of realized like either I make this work or I'm going to go have to find another job. And the pandemic really kicked that into high gear. And so at the beginning of 2020, I actually had to uh, revamp the entire business and change my approach. We've grown online uh, a ton in the last couple of years because of it. And now I'm at a point where I'm by myself and it's working. It's not easy. It's definitely, you know, hard work every single day. And, you know, but I, I'm, I'm surviving. I'm making it work. <laughs> so were you set up for e-commerce prior to 2020? I, I was, yes, but um, not to the extent that I am now. You know, we always had a web shop, but I sort of only had um, 
like our most popular yarns on there. I didn't have everything, everything. And we sold so little online that our physical inventory point of sales was separate from our web shop inventory point of sales. And so if you sold something physical, you had to manually go in and take it off the web shop. Um, and that was fine because, you know, we only sold like a few hundred dollars worth of stuff online. It was fine. Uh, but then, you know, I had to completely change that for 2020. And so I actually got rid of my old point of sale system and I completely rebuilt the back end of the store to have an integrated like in-person point of sales and online and went through the store and put every single piece of inventory down to every last button on there over the last couple of years. It's been a whole lot. But it's been great. And what um, system is that built on? Is that built on Shopify or something different? Yes, it's on Shopify. And you've been happy with the the integration between in-person and online for the POS for Shopify? Yes, yes. When I had started, uh, I was using Lightspeed. Lightspeed is a very good in-person uh, point of sale system. But I found that the website part of it was not great. And so I was actually using Lightspeed and Shopify together. Ah. Um, and then I got rid of Lightspeed and had to become acquainted with the in-person portion of Shopify. But it's worked for you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So when everything did shut down for the pandemic, um, you know, I, I, I know your shop closed. Did you kind of turn the store? Because I know quite a few retailers did this like into almost like a shipping center or like warehouse sort of thing where you would just go in by yourself or maybe have yeah. someone else go in by themselves and just ship online orders? Yeah. So, uh, you know, because at that point I went into panic mode, I was like, well, I'm not giving up. I'm not going down. Uh, and so, yeah, I, you know, I put curtains up so I could close the windows because I'd be in there working and people would keep like walking by and like peering in at me. And it was really creepy because the store was closed. So I put curtains and then I set up my plastic folding tables and just made a shipping station. And I was like, all right, we're going to make this happen. Um, and I was also offering uh, free local deliveries uh, for purchases over, I think it was $30. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, I would be in the store during the day shipping orders. And then I would get in my car and I would drive for two to three hours doing deliveries all over the North Shore. Wow. So what um, what was that yeah, like? That tapered, wow. off. that tapered off eventually. But yeah. Uh, you know, it was definitely not something I ever expected to be doing right. in a yarn shop, right? Driving around um, for two to three hours delivering stuff. Um, but, you know, it was actually, it was really special in a way because it was at the beginning of, you know, the pandemic. It was the beginning of quarantine where we didn't really know anything. And so it was these brief opportunities for connection with people because, like, I'd wear my mask. I'd have my disinfectant spray. I'd run to their doorstep, drop the bag ring the doorbell, run away, wait for my car and wave. And so there was that moment of like, they'd see me and they'd recognize me. And so, you know, it was a way where people still felt a little bit of connection during a time when they weren't really seeing anybody else. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and I'm so glad you survived through the pandemic and were able to kind of figure out how to make it work. And um, and I know that, you know, community, as you said, is really an important value for you and, you know, is built into your name of your store. And, um, and it sounds like workshops are also something important. So mm -hmm. I wondered, um, what kinds of workshops you offer and what works best when it comes to workshops, like which ones really fill and, and have high demand? Well, so the interesting thing about 
workshops is that I think I approach them a little bit differently than other shops. And it's just based on how my uh, brain works. Um, because I've seen a lot of shops do project based classes where they're like, oh, we're going to knit this specific pattern together. And I don't know why, but I sort of I, I feel bad charging people to come knit a pattern with me like the, like there's something where it's not clicking for my brain and obviously it's a format that works because tons of people do it i'm i my workshops really focus more again on the techniques and so uh you know i teach uh you know workshops that focus on steaking workshops that focus on uh you know how to do proper finishing and seams how to do short rows um how to do portuguese knitting brioche from basic to advanced uh, you know, how to read charts. And so it's very much like it's very much the technical aspects. And, uh, you know, now I teach those. I travel to teach those workshops for Vogue knitting in various places. I've been invited to teach them for other knitting guilds. Uh, so there's definitely a, a demand for it. But I always wonder a little bit. I'm like, you know, why is the other format not quite clicking for my brain? And I feel like I'm missing something. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about Portuguese knitting. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So Portuguese knitting is a style of knitting where the yarn is tensioned around the back of your neck or with a knitting pin. And so all the knitting is done by uh, flicking your left thumb. Oh, wow. So it's just a, you know, it's a different way of tensioning the yarn. Yeah. So does that work better for certain people? I'm just trying to think. Yeah. So uh, it can help people who have uh, repetitive motion injuries from, you know, throwing the yarn, which happens. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really good for color work because it controls tension very easily, evenly. And, uh, and also, so if you're a person who struggles with like rowing out in your knitting, uh, Portuguese knitting's good. It's really, it is good for color work. And it's just, you know, for me, it's also fun because it's something that has to do with my, with my ancestry and I get to share a little bit of that, that way. Yeah. And are you still um, dyeing yarn? Um, is that still part of your business? So, yes, sort of. Uh, I haven't stopped officially. I just haven't had much time for it. But I like I will again. You know? <laughs> OK. And uh, because, you know, my yarn is the local yarn when people come and ask, like, oh, I want something dyed here in Salem. It's my yarn. But I can't dye enough to sort of keep it in stock because I'm very busy. And so I'm, I'm figuring it out. You know? Right. Yeah, totally. And is that yarn line called Toil and Trouble? Yes. I love all the like witch branding. <laughs> it's Thank great. You. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And it sounds like too, you opened um, like a, a subscription box. Um, and I wondered if you could tell us about that, both kind of what it is, but also what the sort of thinking was behind it. Well, so it was October of 2020 and I was just, you know, thinking like, what more can I do that's you know going to be interesting, that's good for the business, but also beneficial to my community? And, you know, how can I more deliberately bring together, you know, witchiness and fiber arts? And so I... I just on a whim, I was like, I'm going to make these boxes for Halloween or Salon, uh, where I just have 
um, like a, a cohesive collection of, you know, things that are made especially for this box because I wanted to work with, you know, small makers and collaborate with some folks that way. But I wanted it to be themed for the holiday um, and just have like that witchy vibe, but also be useful to knitters. And so I collaborate regularly with Rochelle from Homebrew Fiber Co., who makes really beautiful witchy you know, project bags and Ash Albrook from Sunflower Knit, their designer who is also a witch, create a lot of their practice into, into their work as well. And they make herbal products like teas and salves as well as natural dyed yarn. And both of them are very dear friends of mine. And so I said, like, well, you know, what if I gather my fiber witches? What can we create together that's special? And what I wanted to do is, you know, share a little bit of the mindfulness practice that is part of witchcraft with people, but in a very accessible way. So each box is going to have, um, you know, some hand-dyed yarn, especially made for the season. Well, actually, the first one was the only one that didn't have hand-dyed yarn, but it had a custom-made project bag and candles and each one now, you know, after that first one went really well, I was like, well, I'm going to keep doing this for other, you know, holiday solstices and equinoxes and it's gone really well. And so now the format is that there's like, a, you know, some sort of exclusive hand dyed yarn. Uh, I've dyed some of them. I've collaborated with other fe- people for some of them. And then there will be, you know, knitting notions and accessories that are different each time, but they, they tie into the theme um, like for uh, Litha of last year. Uh, which is one of the solstices I, you know, was all rose themed. So the yarn was inspired by roses. And then uh, Rochelle, the home row fiber co designed a custom fabric with that motif and sewed it into bags. And then I had uh, a needle runs through it, who is uh, Maria Isabel uh, make a custom needle gauges with the same motif. So everything is very, very cohesive. And I always include a little spell kit, uh, you know, that's some sort of meditation for helping with intention setting or mindfulness. And so it'll come with like a little write up and, you know, usually there's a crystal and a candle, but it's not always the same thing, but there's like a little spell component that goes with it. And so I'm guessing that both the e-commerce ramp up, which we talked about earlier, and then this subscription box um, is allowing you to access more and more customers who aren't necessarily local to Salem. Absolutely. I mean, so the, the first set of boxes that I did, I just made 12 boxes and they sold out very fast. And so I called up my friends and I said, hey, can you make some more stuff really quickly? And then we made a few more like really fast. And, you know, people have really enjoyed them. And so now I'm doing them four or five times a year and, you know, always something different. And it's not it's not a subscription in the sense that you have to be subscribed to get all of them. Uh, They come out regularly and you can just, you know, go and buy one as you know before they sell out. Okay, so So it's not because it's 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 not not like like a a subscription, a membership. Okay, because I was going to say, like, I know that one of the reasons some people create a subscription box is to have that recurring revenue built into their business model. But that sounds like that's not what you were after. Well, I mean, it's, you know, they're not inexpensive and I recognize that. And so I didn't want people to kind of have to make a choice of like, oh, I'm committed to spending this amount of money every time. But, you know, thankfully, I have some uh, very loyal followers who look out for every single box and then, you know, uh, rush to see which one gets to be the first one to buy one, which is really nice. But, you know, it's something where people don't have to say, oh, do I really want to commit to spending $100 four or five times a year? 
Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'd love to shift gears a little bit. You talked about how you teach um, technique-based classes and workshops um, in different places, including at Vogue Knitting. And I know that you serve on the Vogue Knitting Live Diversity Advisory Council. And so I yes. wondered if you could talk about the goal of that group and the impact that it's been having since you've been involved with it. So I was invited to to, to join. Uh, when the DAC was established, there was a, a core group of members that then started in, uh, inviting and voting on, you know, more members. So I wasn't one of the very first ones, but I was ultimately part of the inaugural group. And the goal there was to help Vogue Knitting do everything they can to be uh, a more inclusive and diverse, you know, space and experience and to really be proactive about creating standards for that in the industry you know, I think we all remember now that it's been, I think, almost three years at this point that the conversation started, right, about inclusivity and uh, you know racism in the knitting industry and what to do about it. And Vogue Knitting wanted to take a proactive stance and decided to create this diversity council to, uh, you know, review all of their current practices, but also to serve in an advisory capacity uh, with the implementation of new programs and, you know, just make sure that we're always coming up with new things and so, you know, one of the very first things that we did, because it was right before the pandemic, is we reviewed how they were running their big New York event and looked at ways that we could make it, you know, more inclusive and more accessible. And so for me, with my architecture background, for example, I looked at their market layout and I was like, you know what, let's improve this for wheelchair accessibility. Uh, let's think about what it means to be someone with mobility issues going to an event like this. And so out of that discussion, uh, you know, they sort of reprogrammed the space, but they also created the uh, the quiet room for folks who have, you know, issues with uh, you know sensory overload and need some time to decompress. You know, I, I asked for the creation of that and it was really successful, but we also created early access for folks with disabilities who need more time and space to go through the market so that they could feel like they could go and be safe and enjoy and not just get, you know, trampled over. Um, when the marketplace doors open. And so, you know, there's sort of very concrete things in terms of like, you know, event layout, uh, but then we moved to virtual, right? And so we kind of had to think like, you know, what does it mean in that space? And so we've been very deliberate about recruiting uh, diverse teachers. Uh, we've created a diversity training that happens before every event for teachers and vendors and that we're constantly updating. Um, but we've also created a program called Launchpad, which is a small business accelerator for LGBTQI and BIPOC and disabled, you know, uh, fiber professionals. And we've created, you know, opportunities for more representation through panels. I partnered with Lewis, uh, Lewis Boria, Brooklyn mm -hmm. Boynets. It was actually in New York in 2020 at that Vogue event where he and I said, you know what, we really need to do something to represent Latinos more in the fiber arts. And so we created our Latina Silana panel that runs now um, bi-monthly. And then we created the PRISM panel to represent, you know, queer fiber artists. Angela has created a panel for Asian fiber artists. And so uh, Vogue has really given us as the DAC the opportunity to implement very you know, very specific things, which has been wonderful. Yeah. And I love that you said it's sort of setting an example or a standard for the whole industry. So it goes, it sort of stretches out beyond just the single company. Right. Because, you know, since that started, other companies, other, you know, companies in the fiber industry have started having their own 
you know, DEI practices and DEI hires and making sure that they have systems in place to improve their own practices. But really the goal here for Vogue was to make sure that we were being really proactive and not just reactive. Right. Absolutely. I think that's great to hear a little bit about. And I do think it's something that other companies and organizations can create on their own as well, just to bring people together to review their current practices and think about what they're already doing and what they could be doing going forward in a more proactive Mm -hmm. way. Yeah, I think it's a really inspiring model. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about more about Latina Silana? I I don't know much about that. And is that you said it meets twice a a month? Or how does that work? Uh, Every every other month, every two months. Oh, okay. uh, Vogue Knitting Live now has their virtual monthly retreats. Right. So Latina Silana is a panel where that Louis Boria and I co-host where we invite uh, other Latino fiber artists to come talk to us and share their experiences. And so our goal is both to highlight um, other makers of Latinx backgrounds and, you know, promote their work. But we also have conversations about, you know, how does your identity uh, inform, you know, your, your creative process, but also what has your experience been like as you know, a Latino in the fiber industry and what has been good, what has not been good, what needs to be better. And so we get to simultaneously, you know, highlight uh, other small businesses, but also really bring to the forefront, you know, discussions of diversity. Yeah, that's fabulous. And that's part of Vogue Knitting's virtual event. So you can buy a ticket mm-hmm. to that and be able to attend if, if people yeah. are interested. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, that's super. Um, and I love that Vogue Knitting has continued to do these robust virtual events, even as the world has begun to open up and their live events are happening again. Yes. And that's the thing is that, you know, they're also giving us the space to have these discussions at the in-person events. I uh, flew out to Seattle in April to their first in-person event uh, since the pandemic. And I went there to do a live discussion on diversity with uh, Cecilia, who is also on the council, Creative Sassy on Instagram. And I will be at the New York show in August uh, teaching a bunch of workshops, but also, again, doing a panel on diversity. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's super. Um, okay, so I would love to get to your um, recommendations, if that's okay with you, because you've got some really sure. good ones on this list that I'd love to share with listeners. So um, one of them is a new book. It's called Knit Strips. I've been looking at this book. I think it is so cool. Um, and you got to contribute to it. So tell us about it. I, I did link to it in our newsletter a little while back because it's super cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so Knit Strips is the world's first comic book style you know knitting book uh, and it was born out of the modern daily knitting blog uh, where they were putting out some patterns that were illustrated in you know comic book format and then it turned into a book proposal and the editors actually reached out to me to ask me to contribute a pattern and you know the, the the book is super cool and full of techniques and different projects and bucket list items but one of the things that i thought was really special is that they wanted the book to be very universal with the patterns in terms of being able to use any yarn and any gauge so like the sock pattern that i designed it's a formula so that you can make a sock with literally any gauge as opposed to being like you have to use you know fingering weight yarn at this gauge etc cetera, etc cetera. and so I think that it's really 
built to, you know, the entire book is really built to help empower knitters to really understand how things are coming together, which, you know, is really important to me. Yeah. And it's, it's like they hired like a, a comic book artist to create Mm -hmm. the pages. So it really looks like a comic book. Like it's, it's very cool. Yeah. So the process of designing the pattern for it was very unique because I didn't just have to write the, the, the pattern. I then had to create the sort of basic storyboard for how my comic would be set up to make sure that everything that I thought was important was illustrated. So mine was a combination of um, photos. Uh, but if you look at the pictures of how to do the wrap and turn, I actually did the original drawing. And then the comic book artist, you know, obviously redid it in her style. That's so cool. Yeah, very unique experience of contributing. I mean, many of us have contributed a pattern to a book, but this is a unique um, experience of contributing a pattern to a comic book. Yeah. So yeah, people should go check it out. I think it's super interesting. And you're also, you sell embroidery products as well, correct? At Circle of Mm -hmm. Stitches. And it sounds like you're working on one specifically that is a lunar moth. Yeah. So yeah, I do sell, you know, cross stitch kits and embroidery kits. And I have been partnering with a embroidery artist who goes by Rick Rack. Her name is Inga Ricky. And she designs these really beautiful sort of witchy looking um, embroidery designs. And the amazing thing about them is that they look beautifully complex, but they're all made up of super simple stitches. So they're just very meditative and really nice. And of course, I love the witchy aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I love about embroidery too, is it does look complicated and intricate, but it is really made up of very doable and very easy stitches. Um, and so I don't know, it is very meditative. Like there's not a lot of, you don't have to do a lot of thinking to, to master it. Um, mm-hmm. And it, you get great results. So that's great. And we will link to that specific one in the show notes. And then you also wanted to recommend knitting barber cords. I'm going to admit that I don't know anything about this. So what is that? Oh my goodness. Okay. So the knitting barber, um, she's based uh, somewhere in Europe. I wish I remembered more specifically, but she created these hollow silicone cords that will attach to the end of your needles. And I know that our, uh, our listeners can't see, but I'm going to show you so at least you know what I'm talking <laughs> okay. about. Yeah. So they are these silicone cords. Yeah. And okay. they're very, very flexible and they're hollow. And so they are the perfect stitch holder because what you do is you grab your knitting needle and you just slip the silicone tube onto the tip and then you can just slide your stitches like off your needle onto this very, very flexible silicone oh. cord. Right. So if you want to try on your garments, this makes it really easy. Uh, If you need to put something like sleeve stitches on a holder, it's really easy. Like you never have to thread a darning needle and pull it through the stitches ever again. And because it's like this is very, very flexible, you can tie a knot in it. It makes it very easy to try on your garments. Wow, that's super cool. All right, I I will definitely link to that. That's super neat. My daughter is an avid knitter, and that sounds like it would be a great gift. So yeah, I actually, um, one of my customers, Tessa, recently wrote a blog post about these cords, because it's one of those things where it's really hard to explain how cool they are until (laughs) you use them. And, uh, you know, Tessa is a regular customer of mine, but she was like, Anna, these are kind of stupid. Like, what is this? And I was like, seriously, (laughs) you need to trust me. And so she wrote an entire blog post on, you know, how she was wrong and how awesome they are. Yeah, they're one of those things that <laughs> so you need to see in person um, or like yeah. just try yourself and then. So I'll, I'll send you the link so that yes. you, know, you two can 
know how wonderful they are. <laughs> yeah, this is a good gift for a knitter um, in your life. Yeah. So, or for yourself if you're a knitter. So that's yeah, awesome. and they come in a rainbow of colors. Right, yours are purple. They're very pretty. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking to you. Oh, thanks so much, Abby. Thank you for having me. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills and a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there is something for everyone from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.